Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest, Emil Ali, we play A Day at the Movies. And then, inspired by the top movies of today, we discuss what's more explosive, vision or fashion. But I think we all know the answer. But first, your host, Jared Correa. The stately plump Buck Mulligan also listens to the Legal Toolkit podcast. Do you? Well, yeah, I guess you are because you're listening to it right now. Never mind. And yes, it's still called the Legal Toolkit podcast, even though I have no clue what a variable speed scroll saw is, though my guess is that it's better than a single speed scroll saw. I'm your host, Jerry Korea. You're stuck with me because Milton Berle was unavailable. He was occupied building out the next episode of Texco Star Theater. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. Schedule a demo to check out our new e-signature tool at GideonLegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Emil Ali of McCabe Ali, LLP, I want to talk about software integrations. That's right, software integrations. You know, I talk to people a lot about legal technology, and one of the things we talk about quite a bit is this concept of software integrations. Which, you know, I think it's still pretty hard for people to grasp, actually. Because when I have these conversations with a lot of folks, I'm like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? So I wanted to do a little bit on integrations, talk about their importance, and hopefully give people a better understanding of those before I talk about, like, pop culture or music in the next episode. So one of the biggest values of cloud-based software is that you can actually connect it to other cloud-based softwares, which was a huge pain in the ass to do with desktop software at any level. So that's a staggering advantage, frankly. And if you look at like some of the tools out there, Clio and Legal, Salesforce and CRM, Clio basically copied Salesforce's strategy, which was to have a bunch of integration partners who could help you sell your services. Great marketing strategy, obviously, worked pretty well for them. It's a good thing to do in terms of business generation, revenue generation for vendors, but it's also really effective for the end user. So let's talk about why. Let's talk about what integrations do. So integrations really do two things. They can surface features on one product through another, and they can allow you to share data, like push and pull data between softwares, which is really important. So what's an example of being able to surface features in one software for another. Let's say you're using an automated calendaring tool like Calendly or Acuity or something like that, and you've got it connected to your calendar app like Outlook or Google Calendar, or you have it connected to your case management system or your CRM. See how helpful this is? You're starting to get it, right? You can schedule into your calendar via another application, which is pretty cool, which means you don't have to do that and you've unified these two products together. Super helpful, because lawyers are terrible at scheduling things. 
um, otherwise. And, you know, not for nothing, but most business people are terrible about scheduling things without automated calendaring tools. Another example of that would be um, you could track time on your cases in an automated fashion using an automated time tracking tool like uh, Chrometa or uh, Time Bro or WiseTime or something like that. And then you can push that directly into your case management system as a build item. That's really helpful. And again, it takes a step away from what you're doing, saving you time, allowing you to be more efficient. And the reason you do this is because those features may not exist in your current system that you're using or the primary system that you use. You may not have an automated time tracker in your case management system. Some do. You may not have a scheduling tool in your case management system or CRM. Some do. But if you don't, you can supplement your product with another. And if you have the two licenses and there's direct integration between those two softwares, you're good to go. I'll talk about the types of integrations in a second here. The other thing you can do is you can share data from one system into another. And probably the best example I can think of with this is now that law firms are starting to use CRMs pretty regularly post-pandemic, you can take a lead profile, a set of information about a lead, a potential client that you take on with a law firm, and then push that automatically into a law practice management software or a case management software once that client has closed. You don't have to go in and manually input that data and maybe make some mistakes on it, and you don't have to spend the time doing that. It's really helpful. So integrations are great, and I just gave you three examples off the top of my head. There are millions, literally millions. There's so many different softwares that you can connect now via different attributes. We'll talk about those. So how does this all happen? This happens through something called an API. An API, at its most basic level, is a tool that allows softwares, a programming environment really, that allows softwares to swap data back and forth to surface some of these features. I always have a hard time explaining this, so let's go to our friends at Wikipedia who have the following definition. An API is an application programming interface, and it's a way for two or more computer programs to communicate with each other. Beautiful. Thank you, Wikipedia. All right, further. It is a type of software interface offering a service to other pieces of software. And now this is an important part too. So a document or standard that describes how to build or use such a connection or interface is called an API specification. And a computer system that meets this standard is said to implement or expose an API. The term API may refer either to the specification or to the implementation. All right, let's unpack that a little bit. There is API documentation in place for companies that have APIs available for other softwares to write for their system or to code for their system, which may be published or which may be behind closed doors. So if a system has an open API, that means anyone can access that and create an integration for their system. Um, there are certain specifications around that. When I say anyone, I don't mean anyone. The API specifications will lock people out that potentially don't have the right security protocols, for example. But you get my drift. Anybody can see the information, at least, even if they don't have the chops to write for it. Um, and then there's these closed API environments where companies will only proffer that information to other organizations that they want to work with. You have to ask for it. Now, there are three types of integrations that are available. One is a direct integration. And this is the easiest and cheapest way to do it. So a direct integration is when two companies have said, hey, let's work together. 
You push your information into my software. I'll push my information into your software. We'll surface each other's features. Now, what's great about that is there's, there's a direct integration. Two companies have built this integration together conceivably. You don't need to pay anything else to access that integration. Super helpful. Lawyers are cheap. Wait, lawyers are cheap? Yeah, lawyers are cheap. Okay. Then we've got the indirect integration, which means that there's not a direct integration that exists in the sense that two companies have built an integration together, but there is a third-party bridging technology that you can use. Uh, For example, Zapier is the most prolific tool like this. Make is another, but there are a bunch of others out there, which will essentially create an API connection using its software to allow these two softwares to communicate with each other. Sounds more complicated than it is, frankly. Think of it as each of the software, I use the term bridging software for a reason. Think of it as two softwares being two separate banks on a river, and you need a bridge to connect them. Zapier is the bridge, or Make is the bridge. Now, the challenge with this is, while there are a lot of software is potentially using a bridging tool, especially one like Zapier, which means that you can connect to a bunch of other systems. There's a fee for that once you get to a certain level, depending on how many systems you connect to each other, how many triggers they are called that you use. And they're they're called triggers in Zapier because you're doing one thing in one software, which has another thing happen in the other software, right? So it's a cause and effect type of thing. So Zapier's really useful tool. You can connect almost anything to anything else using Zapier and or the direct integrations that you have from a software provider. But you got to think about the additional cost for that. So uh, what's interesting is that my case, which is very anti-integration for a long time, they wanted you to use just their software, which they kind of viewed as an operating system for legal, which is kind of a myth that I think a lot of these companies have been peddling for a while. They actually have a Zapier integration that they recently announced. So now you can connect that software to a whole bunch of other softwares. So Zapier is great. Tools like that are great. But there is a little bit of additional cost to that. And then there's the second type of indirect integration, which is if you can get a company to give you their API documents or you can access the API documents on your own, you can build your own integration with the software. Unless you know technology, unless you can hire engineers, unless you want to spend a boatload of money to do this and to update it, I would avoid this entirely um, as a law firm unless you're a big law firm with lots of revenue, right? Because the challenge is not just building the API connection. Yeah, you can do that. It's maintaining it because these things break all the time, right? So somebody on one side of that river, one software company changes a field or the way they name a field, and then that breaks everything. You got to fix that. It's a pain in the ass, frankly. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which is a great Coen Brothers movie. If you have not seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, check it out. And if you're thinking of doing an indirect integration, building out your own integration using the API tools that are out there, do not seek the treasure. But there is a treasure at the end of this podcast, which is not only our interview with Emil Ali, where we're talking about ethics for intellectual property attorneys, but also, yes, the rump roast where we're celebrating Barbenheimer weekend. Stay tuned for all that and potentially more. I don't know. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. 
Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Okay, let's get to the meat in the middle of this legal podcasting sandwich. Today's meat is spam, a Hawaiian delicacy, and tremendous fried. Trust me, your heart will thank you when it implodes. All right, that's enough of that. Let's talk to our guest. We have today, in his very first appearance on the Legal Toolkit podcast, Emil Ali, who is a partner at McCabe and Ali LLP. Emil, I wanted to talk to you because I think you have a really interesting practice niche. So you're an ethics attorney, and you actually have this niche where you work with IP attorneys, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I've never heard of that before. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, my background, I guess you can say, is I am a registered patent attorney, right? So I, I'm licensed in multiple jurisdictions, but I also now have a technical background and I've taken and passed the, what you call the patent bar, the registration exam. So it allows right. me, if I wanted to, to prepare and prosecute patent applications. But most of the work that I've done over the years, both while in the government and now in private practice is representing lawyers and law firms in, I guess you could say, the intersection of ethics and IP. You know, my elevator pitch is that I'm one of a few hundred ethics attorneys, but as far as I know, I'm one of two IP attorneys that's within that few hundred uh, ethics attorneys. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. My day-to-day job is doing things like helping defend lawyers when they get into trouble. So, you know, I meet a lot of attorneys because they're being investigated either by a state bar or by the USPTO. And some of your listeners who are not IP attorneys will be surprised to know that the USPTO has its own disciplinary arm with something like over 20 attorneys who investigate and prosecute attorney misconduct. I didn't even know that. It, yeah, it is wild. So can we unpack this a little bit? Because this is some crazy shit right here. Like, how does that work? Does that mean that you can also, could you be prosecuted by like two entities, like your state ethics board and like the patent ethics board, whatever this thing is, Star Chamber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Star okay. Chamber is probably a good, uh, it's a good way to put it. So yes, you can. And But in fact, even as a state barred attorney in multiple states, you technically can be prosecuted by multiple states, right? Ugh. So let's say you are an attorney licensed in the state of Oregon, but you live in the state of California. And in California, you get, 
I don't know, two DUIs. Unfortunately, as you probably know, lawyers tend to have a high prevalence of DUIs. So you get two DUIs in California and California says, hey, we're going to give you a reprimand. You know, Oregon could say, nope, we we think you deserve a suspension. And right. so two, the same conduct could give you two different results. And the worst part about it, at two different times. Uh, the other thing they could do, yeah. Nice. So the other thing just is be a that, garbage man. No, no, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So, some, sometimes I wonder, right? So California could give you that reprimand, and then Oregon could also take reciprocal action. Can you can you explain that? What is reciprocal action? Yeah, mean? yeah. It's a good question. So reciprocal action is think of it like comedy. When one state says we're going to give deference to another state or jurisdictions. Uh, kind of review of the case. And they look at it under general, like uh, in in federal law, we consider them the selling factors. It's from a Supreme Court case called Selling v. Radford. Uh, But really what they look at is, was there any issues with the burden of proof, right? Was there any problem with that? Was there any due process violations? And generally speaking, as far as I've seen, I've never been able to have a a client show that there was anything wrong with the underlying process. So (laughs) a lot of times my biggest take when I talk to somebody for the first time, you know, I'll talk to them and and they'll say, hey, I have this investigation. And I tell them, hey, this is the process. And they're like, no, no, I'll handle it myself. And I'm like, that's fine. Just remember, if you aren't successful, and obviously successful is very subjective, but if you aren't successful, if you get, say, a two-year suspension at the USPTO, and you're barred in Massachusetts. Massachusetts could theoretically take that suspension and say, oh, even though you didn't do anything in our state, you don't even live here anymore, whatever, we're gonna go ahead and reciprocally discipline you. And they'll ask you, was there anything unfair about the process at the USPTO? And you'll say, oh, well, they suspended me, that's not fair. And that's not one of the factors (laughs) that you can really rely upon in in most jurisdictions, right? Some jurisdictions don't treat the USPTO or other states as, you know, reciprocal jurisdiction. Sure, sure. For the most part, I would say more than half do. So how active is this USPTO board? Like on a likelihood scale, like are they coming after me first if I'm a patent lawyer? Or am I more likely to get my state ethics boards coming after me? You know, that's a good question. I think it varies from person to person and conduct to conduct. It really depends on how the case is open. So there's a a few hundred cases a year. So I guess my question to you would be, when it comes to complaints, right? Patent attorneys do the same thing as regular attorneys, right? For the most part, right? Uh, Not responding to clients. Right, right, right. Yeah. I'm not going to say stealing money from clients. I will say sometimes they borrow money from their trust account. You know, things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, largely they feel like they can pay back. I think that's probably what they think. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends, right? Who is the client going to complain to, right? They're going to complain to their state bar. Right. And that's just how it works because it's easier for them to understand that concept. It's it's very difficult for an unsophisticated user of legal services who just paid $10,000 to file a patent application to sit and find the number for OED online because they didn't even know it existed. But yeah, sometimes, right. you know, if you call the patent office and say, hey, you know, my attorney filed this patent application for me, but I haven't seen him or heard from her or whatever in 20 years, you know, whatever, then of course they might refer you to the correct office, and that's how they might get the case. Oh, that makes sense. Classify under a blind squirrel finding a nut. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. And 
There are also cases that originate within the office. So a trademark examining attorney or a patent examiner could submit a complaint. They also, you know, I know they say they don't look for it, but there are people within the USPTO that are looking for patterns of uh, yeah. things. And f- funny enough, and, you know, I- I'm sure some of your listeners are like, ah, oh, I don't want to listen to people, you know, talking about discipline and all that. Oh, but, they love it. <laughs> yeah. If you really, if you really want to know what the USPTO has been focusing on of late, it's signatures. Okay. Oh God, so, really? Yeah, it used to be a lot of my cases were very technical into patent application. Somebody, you know, putting in the wrong reference or failing to cite a reference. There's so many different technical things that could happen or subject matter conflicts. These days, I'm representing more and more trademark attorneys. So I would say our firm probably does now more trademark disciplinary defense than patent disciplinary defense. And most of those people are getting in trouble for their representation of clients uh, in and from China. And it generally has to do with signatures. So I'll take a step back and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what I think is a very common practice with attorneys and how the USPTO interacts with that practice. (laughs) So let's say, Jared, you and I were in litigation on behalf of opposing parties. And we have to file a joint motion or status update or something to the court. So Jared, you might say, hey, Emil, based on our conversation today, I'm gonna file a joint motion saying such and such. And then you'll electronically sign your name. And then you might say, hey, Emil, As one would in 2023. Exactly. And then you might say, hey, Emil, would you mind if I electronically sign your name? Or you'll say, hey, can you sign this document? And I'll say, go ahead, Jared, just sign my name. And people do that. Yeah, it it is very common. So it's so easy to get somebody's signature. Signature platform. (laughs) That's just crazy to me. (laughs) So 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 maybe so maybe you won't think that the USPTO's goal here or whatever their their trajectory here is as much of a problem as I do. So when it comes to filing trademark applications or patent applications, there are a lot of perfunctory pro forma aspects of it. Filing a trademark application requires some preparation ahead of time to get the information ready, to understand what you're going to put. But ultimately, typing in the form is something a scrivener can do. So, you know, when you're filing this trademark application, a lot of times you might have a paralegal input the information. Prepare the filing. Yeah. And there's a proprietary system that they use. It requires you to log in, et cetera. So you go into this USBTO filing system, your paralegal prepares the application, and then now it's somebody's turn to sign it, whether it's the client or the attorney. Yeah. So the attorney says, hey, paralegal, thanks for showing me the application. Go ahead and enter my name between two forward slashes and submit. That three, four years ago, maybe a warning letter, 10 years ago, no, no action wouldn't even been open two years ago. I would have been able to get you a reprimand or something like that. You know, one year ago, maybe a 30 day suspension. Now, if it's happened more than once, they're tossing out one year suspensions for that. Whoa. Yeah. And you know, it, it is, it is extremely, extremely disconcerting that the folks that are getting that discipline are what I would call non IP attorneys that happen to be practicing trademark Oh, that makes law. sense. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. Jared, you would consider yourself to not be an IP attorney, right? Uh, most definitely. 
<laughs> so not that I'm going to say that you're going to become under the jurisdiction of the USPTO. Oh, God, let's hope not after this. <laughs> but let's say that you filed a trademark application on behalf of me or my company. Well, now you're suddenly under the jurisdiction of the USPTO. And let's say that you didn't personally sign that trademark application. Your wife did or your your paralegal did. My, my dog. Your, yeah, any, anyone, right? Now you violated their special signature rule. It's 37 CFR 2.193 on the trademark side. Good and Lord. Yeah, it's, it, it is really incredible. And uh, I'll tell you the really kind of maybe political piece here. So when it comes to a majority of the trademark applications right now, they're coming from China. So Jared, your question is, why are they coming from China? And, you know, really- this is from the, the whole show. This is, yeah. I'm going to take a nap. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> so we all buy things from Amazon. Amazon needs to prevent folks from selling counterfeit goods or gray market goods. So if I wanted to sell a coach bag on Amazon, they're not going to let me do it. But how, do, how does coach establish that it owns the right to sell coach bags. Really, coach does that through something called Amazon brand registry. So you have to show Amazon that you have a right to sell those goods under that mark by showing ownership or control of that trademark. So when the random person in China that wants to sell you a widget, you know, like, I don't know, let's, let's call it Acme, okay? So in order to sell under Acme, Amazon is treating them just like Coach. They're like, we don't want to get sued for selling gray market, counterfeit, or whatever goods on our platform. So prove to us that you own the Acme brand. So you file a trademark for Acme. And that's why a lot of these brands on Amazon are made up words because a made up it. word is so easy to file a trademark application for. Like Verizon, made up term. Xfinity, made up term. Easy right. to say, no one else is using it. We can easily get a trademark. Same thing with HHNNP, right? Whatever, like a, <clears throat> a random string of, of words or letters. So now we get, like, we, we have to get this application filed. Well, a couple of years ago, when all these applications were getting filed, the USPTO was like, wow, we're getting way too many applications from China. What should we do? <clears throat> and they decided to create this rule that says, you can no longer file applications pro se unless you're domiciled in the United States. Oh, so interesting. Okay. If you, yeah, if you're outside the United States, instead of targeting a country that has said, if you're outside the United States, you need to have an attorney. Sounds reasonable. Unfortunately, that's not really in the budget of these Amazon sellers. So these Amazon sellers who are previously <laughs> kind of using companies Shocker. to do this. Yeah. Yeah. They started contracting with U.S. attorneys and saying, hey, yeah. we'll prepare the trademark application. Could you just review it and file it? And that's what they were doing. But then there's such a volumes that they were like delegating the signing task to a uh, paralegal. And oh, that makes sense. That's, yeah. you know, okay. that's really fascinating. Yeah. And I, and I totally see the point of the USPTO and trying to protect and make sure the trademark register is appropriate. But yeah. You know, the, the fact of the matter is most attorneys don't know this. And, you know, when you have a immigration attorney that, you know, got a message from somebody in China saying, hey, can you help us with this? You're an attorney. You're eligible to do this, but hasn't really understood the rules. It's kind of sad to 
to suspend them for a year and then I know. Yeah. switching switching back and then their state reciprocally will discipline them. Oh, uh, luckily, most states are like, you know what? That doesn't seem right. And they they have been, for the most part, lowering those sanctions. Oh, Lord. Um, Look at these landmines. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was going to ask you, like, why would you specialize in a practice area like this? But clearly, a lot of issues for you to resolve. And it sounds yeah. like you're very busy. All right, that's super helpful. All right, last question for you. More of a general question. Like, lawyers worry about ethics all the time. IP attorneys, other attorneys. And a common question I get is like, okay, what's my threshold for taking action? Like I screwed something up, right? Maybe it's not a big problem, or at least you don't think it's a big problem. Like when do you report something to your carrier? When do you reach out to an ethics counsel? Do you get an advisory opinion before you do things? Like how do you how do you advise attorneys on that? Yeah, great question. So I actually did two of these this week, two reports to a carrier. And the, the way I outline it is it's always best to talk to me, obviously, uh, if you already work with me yes, talk and to just me. run it by me, right? Because the easiest thing to do is blame it on me. Say, Emil told me to do this. <laughs> oh, good. Can I do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, non, not legal stuff, but just generally. Yeah, you can tell your wife Emil told you to okay. do it. Right? Okay, good, good, good. So, yeah, so when I'm, when I'm, Talking to these folks, I like to understand their problem. So first, there's a there's an ethics issue, and then there's a malpractice issue. Right. And as part of the malpractice issue, there's a duty to report to your carrier in most policies. So <laughs> let's talk about the ethics issue first. Uh, the ABA has a great opinion on this. I don't recall it offhand. It's like I think it's four ninety five. It's about mistakes, <laughs> and it deals with whether you have a duty to report under Rule one point four, and you know, I'm going to summarize it very, very simply. And, you know, I'm going to leave out a lot of facts, but if it's a current client and it's a material mistake, you have a duty to report. Okay. If it's not material, or if it's a former client for a number of reasons, you don't have to report it. It doesn't mean you cannot, but it doesn't mean you have to. So it's not an ethical obligation. So let's have an example of a client, you know, forgets to send an email to opposing counsel, analyze it, right? Is it material? Well, I sent it the next day. Does that mean the offer is pulled? Well, that's a material mistake mm-hmm. versus, oh, no problem. You know, we'll just file this, you know, one day late, but it's not going to impact the case, right? Those are two different things. If yeah. you've made a mistake and your client asks you, hey, did you already send this letter? You know, don't lie about it. But at the same time, it's not necessarily something you need to affirmatively tell them, oh, I forgot to send this. I sent this the next day. But if there's something else that happens. So for example, a client forgets to file a document. And because of that, in a patent application, because of that, there's now a a one-year bar. Like you you did it after the one-year period. You didn't file the non-provisional application. Now there's literally nothing you can do, right? You've really royally screwed up. That's (laughs) going to be, you have a duty to communicate to your client, right? And then you have a uh, malpractice liability. One, you kind of have a duty in your contract to not make admissions generally, but you have a duty to report to your carrier. But yeah. Let's say many of my clients do this. They're like, Emil, I want to pay you out of pocket. I don't want my premiums to go up. And I, I tell them I'm happy to do it, but I would highly not recommend it because you're not going to be yeah, happy yeah, yeah. paying the bills. Yeah. But also there's yes. just so much risk, right? Because yeah. if you fail to report, that's one thing. But now- Five months later, when they sue you, that's not covered. 
right? You fail to report and you took uh, corrective action without the input of the carrier, which in, you know, depending on the policy could be that the thing that really kills you. And, you know, I'm not a big insurance guy. I don't have, I don't, I'm not, I don't practice in that area, but I know enough to be dangerous. And that's, I think that's a really, really big issue when it comes to, to policies. And then on top of that, usually upon renewal, you have to notify them of any pending or you know past <laughs> investigations and right. lawsuits or errors and things that you've come to be aware of. And you fail to report it. Now that's a false statement on a uh, insurance application. And that is could be a misdemeanor or a felony in your state. So it, yeah, it's de- there's definitely a lot of landmines. But I think Boy. one thing I, I will tell you is yeah. that we all make mistakes, right? I, I'm the first well, one to tell my clients- do. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> no I, you know, I'm not infallible, right? You'll, you'll find a missing period. Like I've read this 30 page document like 20 times, but I missed that one period. Like, we all make mistakes, Yeah. but it's how we move on from them. And half my job is walking clients through a terrible experience, right? They're pissed off that their client complained about them. They're scared that, you know, they're going to lose their house or their business and they're going to lose their license. And, you know, there's no end in sight. Right. Yeah. yeah, My job is I don't know yet what that end will be. I have an idea, but I'm still I have to investigate their claims to me because, you know, we're so self-interested that when when we're telling the attorney, oh, hey, hey, Emil, here's what happened. We're telling them one side of the story. Right. So I need to make, I need to do my investigation and kind of understand what's going on. But part of it is I really need to calm them down. I can't, I can't mislead them into thinking, oh yeah, this is going to close with no action. You didn't do anything wrong because part of it is taking corrective action. So yeah, it's, it's sometimes I, I can tell you, I don't love being a lawyer, but I, I do still love my job because you know, by and large, I get to help people and, you know, I try to help people be, the best lawyer that they can be, right? And, you know, yes. I, I know that's very cliche, but I, I I do really enjoy that aspect of it. Well, this was really interesting. Like a lot of cool stuff in here. Emil, I appreciate you coming on. Can you stick around for our final segment? Sure. This is going to be the uh, death star of uh, questions that I probably don't know the answer to. Yeah, in a nutshell. All right, everybody, we'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about our sponsor companies and their latest service offerings. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with Rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. 
Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back, everybody. That's right. We're at the rear end of the Legal Toolkit once again. This is the Rump Roast. It's a grab bag of short-form topics, all my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Uh, Mil, we were talking before, and I think you were telling me you're a pop culture expert, right? <laughs> I cooked up something fun for you, or at least I think it's fun. We're going to call it A Day at the Movies, and we're going to okay. be pretty literal about that. So we are recording this podcast on July 21st, 2023, and that happens to be the day that both the Barbie movie and the Oppenheimer movie come out in general release. People have been enamored of the juxtaposition of these two films coming out at the same time, and there's this phenomenon called Barbenheimer that's coming out. Now, a lot of people are like, I don't have to choose. I'll see both movies, but that's not how we roll at the Legal Toolkit. So I'm going to need you to make a choice. Not only between Barbie and Oppenheimer, though, we're also going to transport you back in time to similarly disjointed release days, and you'll have to pick between additional, unusual, or unexpected pairings. Are you ready to play? I am ready. Okay. July 21st, 2023. Barbie's out. Oppenheimer's out. Which one do you see and why? I would probably say I would much prefer to see Oppenheimer. However, I do have a young daughter and I believe <laughs> I, she, she's, she's almost three. She has yet to see a movie in the theaters. Really? Um, my son. Yeah. Oh. My son was that age when he saw his first movie and so, yeah, so I, I have a feeling she's not super into Barbie, but she does, you know, play with her Barbie doll and all okay. that. So I think that might be the movie that we'll probably end up seeing, probably not in the first two weeks, but maybe in the probably third or fourth not. week. Yeah. No, it's funny. Like, I'm the same way. Like, I, I do want to see the Oppenheimer movie. Love Christopher Nolan. But um, I will probably end up at Barbie. Girl dads, what are you going to do? Yep. All right. Here's another one. June 23rd, 1989. Batman, the original Batman with Michael Keaton, came out on the same day as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with Rick Moranis. What is your preference, sir? Wow, that's a blast from the past. Um, <laughs> I remember right. watching Honey, I Shrunk the Kids on TV. I didn't see it in the movie theater, but I remember yeah. seeing it on TV like every year. And even though I did love Batman, I, I love that original TV show as well. Yes. I probably would say Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, and yeah. I, I mean, like, Rick Randis is a boss. He crushed it in those movies and then basically yeah. retired, living the dream. All right. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, dive down a little bit deeper into this because I got bonus Batman content for you. July 18th, 2008, Christopher Nolan's Batman, The Dark Knight, comes out on the same day as Mamma Mia. So this is not the first time that Christopher Nolan has been in this particular predicament. What do you see there? I would probably do Batman. I, I don't Solid choice. Remember, yeah, I don't think I've seen Mamma Mia, the movie, but I definitely have seen the uh, the musical, which yes. is fun. I mean, everyone knows ABBA, right? So. Yes, Dark Knight was awesome. I thought yeah. it was a great movie. Okay, here's another one. Blast from the past. May 21, 1980, The Empire Strikes Back comes out on the same day as The Shining, believe it or not. I feel like that's a tough choice. Where do you go? I would say Star Wars. 
All right. Are you a Star Wars guy or is that just like- You know, I, yeah. I, I used to be a Star Wars guy growing up, or I would say actually more of a Star Trek guy, but oh, the general category, I guess the era that I grew up in was uh, the next generation. That was the, like my favorite- oh, yeah, Captain uh, Picard. Yeah, yeah. I probably, I'm not a big Star Wars guy. I'd probably see The Shining, but I think that's huh. a tough choice. All right, I got yeah. some more for you. March 31st, 1999. The Matrix is playing at movie theaters alongside 10 Things I Hate About You. So we got another Heath Ledger thing going on here. Okay. So I actually saw The Matrix in the theaters, I think <laughs> nice. like within like the first, I think, you know, probably came out on a Thursday and I probably saw it on that Friday with a oh, bunch wow. of friends. So wow. yeah. You were stoked to see it then. Yeah. It, it, it it was just, I mean, the idea of it was so cool. And I will tell you, my mind was blown. I was like, are we living in the matrix? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh my God, we're in the simulation. Yeah, right. yeah. Here's another one. June 8th, 1985, we've got a spooky special. Gremlins coming out on the same day as Ghostbusters, which is something I did not know until earlier today. I have not seen Gremlins. I have seen Ghostbusters, so I would probably say uh, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is a way better movie. Yeah. I can confirm. Okay. November 12th, 1993, back in the time machine. The Piano with Holly Hunter comes out alongside Ernest Rides Again, the sequel to Ernest Goes to Camp. <laughs> Do you remember those movies? And which one would you see? So I have not seen either of those movies and I will say the Ernest movies were always very <laughs> odd. So I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I would skip that day. The answer is never the Ernest movies. Yeah. Okay. I got, this is fun. I got two more for you. November 22nd, 1995, Toy Story is out on the same day as a very dissimilar movie, Casino, with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. Hmm. What do you think? I guess it depends on how old I am at the time, right? True. Probably not going to go so, see Casino as an eight-year-old. <laughs> correct. Um, but Toy Story, I, I again, I, I think I saw that on TV or video, like VHS or whatever, not in the theater. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not my favorite movie, right? Like really? I, wow. I don't love Toy Story. Oh, wow. Um, I was the soundtrack was that. pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Casino, you're a casino guy? Let's maybe, assume yeah. you're an adult. Yeah. So adult-wise, unless I'm taking my kids, I'd probably do Casino. Yeah. I mean, Goodfellas, I feel like, was better. Godfather was obviously better. And I, I really like Toy Story. All right. Let's see if we're All aligned right. on the last one. I got one more for you. Okay. We got our Christmas holiday special. November 7th, 2003. Elf with Will Ferrell comes out on the same day as Love Actually, which is a movie my wife is, like, in love with. So what do you choose? Those are both solid movies. Yes. Um, I don't like the idea of watching Elf every year, right? It comes on a lot. You've had enough of Elf. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, so let's maybe, do something else. Yeah, so maybe I'd say Love Actually. All right. It's, man. it's a good hey. movie, yeah. I, hey. I like my rom-coms. I, I had like, I didn't necessarily have high hopes for this segment when we talked earlier, but you crushed it, man. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. Thanks. I feel like I should have had more movies teed up, but we'll do something again next time. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you want to find out more about Emil Ali and McCabe Ali LLP, visit, appropriately enough, McCabeAli.com. That's M-C-C-A-B-E-A-L-I.com. McCabeAli.com. 
Now, for those of you listening in Hollywood, California, check out our Barbenheimer playlist. We've got some serious songs. We've got some silly songs. Because we don't have to choose. Sadly, I've run out of time today to talk about nuclear fission. But that's okay. Because I'm afraid of the consequences it will have for humanity. Um, Being told that a nuclear bomb has already been developed. That's awkward. I guess we're fucked. This is Jared Korea, reminding you that we girls can do anything. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.